0: Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. Hey Adam, I found a new fundraiser for the World Health Organisation. You know, it's a little bit down on its luck in that. What's that? A Coronavirus NZ swear jar. Why the f***
1: would we want a swear jar?
0: Uh, Well, can't prove my point really, but think of all the time it'll save you in the edit. Fair call. Plus, I've only got a limited supply of bleeps, I guess. Yeah, and the longer this goes on, the more we seem to be
1: losing our sh**. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Wednesday the 22nd of April. I'm
0: Adam Dudding, And I'm Eugene Bingham. Each day we bring you the main stories, a few of the more unusual things, a few musical pieces we notice around the world, and then we take a closer look at one particular topic. You know, today we've had the Prime Minister weighing into the national obsession with takeaways as we await the end of Level 4. The Restaurant Association was saying that businesses will be too reliant on third-party delivery apps like Uber Eats and things like that, and they wanted the government to force Uber to reduce the cut it takes from restaurants, but Jacinda Ardern was asked about this today and she said, you know, people can vote with their feet by using local businesses that do their own deliveries.
1: Later, we speak with Janine Crossan, New Zealand's patient number 37, who fell sick soon after returning from London. Already a big social media presence, she tweeted and Instagrammed her way through self-isolation, a gruelling case of COVID-19 and time in hospital. But first
0: what's happened today. Coronavirus has taken the life of another rest home resident. It was a woman in her 80s. She died on Wednesday afternoon, which brings the overall death toll to 14. She was another one of those residents from the Rosewood Rest Home in Christchurch, which, you know, that's now connected to 43 infections and eight deaths.
1: There are six new cases today, taking the total to 1,451. So of those, 1,036 cases are recovered up 30 from the day before, 11 people are in hospital, two of them are in intensive care, though are both stable.
0: GPs are facing enormous financial pressure, the Epidemic Response Committee has heard today. The New Zealand Medical Association told the committee, we don't know if some practices are going to survive this. You know, it's kind of ironic really, at the time of the greatest health crisis to hit the world in a century, work for doctors has dried up because of the lockdown.
1: So last night I went for my regular evening-slash-dusk walk with my wife. And it was kind of interesting. It took a little bit longer than normal to get to the beach because um, twice we ran into neighbours. And th- these aren't neighbours we know particularly well. I I, I hope they're not listening because I've got to confess I don't remember their names from when we introduced ourselves to each other at the um, the street party a couple of years ago. But anyway, in each case, we, we, we ended up chatting. And chatting for quite a while. One guy was doing his firewood and so we discussed... Firewood orders, and another block on. We ran into this other neighbour, and she was carrying her shopping bag from Countdown, and we talked about how we ordered some stuff from the grocer, and blah blah blah. But there was something really, really nice about them. And as, as I was walking away, I was saying to my wife, "God, that was nice. You know, I was really missing that." And i was just aware there's this real hunger for contact.
0: Yeah, it's that need for human contact, isn't it? The longer the lockdown has gone on, the more we're all missing it, aren't we? Yeah,
1: and and it's it's not just the social connection of being able to talk to someone you kind of half know. It's physical as well. But that physical connection isn't necessarily with people you know particularly well. Carmen Parahi made this point in a stuff piece today uh, where she sort of rattles off some of the professional interactions that have been forbidden. You know, a hairdresser touching your head, a physio massaging your muscles, a, a nail technician painting your fingers. I thought it was just a really nice reminder. We don't always realise how much we need that stuff until it's gone. So anyway, uh, we have Carmen on the line. Kira Carmen. A, a virtual hug of welcome to you.
2: <laughs> oh, Kia ora, hey, Your Carmen, your
0: piece starts talking about a friend in your community. Can you tell us about her and What she's feeling?
2: Yeah, so she's been our family friend for a while. I'm a single working mum, so uh, she actually um, semi-retired a few years ago and took it upon herself and her husband to um, help me with the kids. And so she has become our quasi-grandmother, our nanny, of sorts. Uh, She's also a leader in our community, and uh, she now lives alone because her husband passed away um, and has been on her own for a few weeks now, which means she hasn't actually been able to touch anybody, except for her dog, who she loves uh, dearly, Uh, and so she really misses that.
1: There's a line in your piece where you you also list um, some of those interactions that that we're used to, you know, the, the handshake, hongi, bro hug, cheek kiss, hug and pat on the back. Uh, you know, these have all all but disappeared. So, if you're in a bubble which has got people in it, you can get a you can get a certain amount of this from a certain number of people. But how has this friend of yours dealt with that?
2: She really misses it, and as strong and independent as she is, being a community leader and having to do all the work she's had to to carry uh, all of us as she makes decisions for us to keep us safe she really misses the hugs and we had a group uh, friend Hui Zoey, we call it a Zoom Hui a zooey. we uh, did that the other day and we could tell um there was a tremor in her voice and you know just a slight tear in her eye uh, telling us that she just needs to physically hug someone
0: it's not the same is it the old video was you know Zoey or uh, Facebook Messenger call, it's just not the same
2: No it's not and as much as she needs a hug we need to go and check on her as well but we, we also need to um, uh, go and see people we love because I'm lucky I've got two kids in my bubble and so of course I'm getting hugs and kisses all day and so it's our opportunity to expand that bubble a bit Uh, include somebody. But what I do uh, know is that we have to keep those bubbles mutually exclusive, which is a really funny term that I heard uh, Prime Minister Ardern talking about keeping the bubbles mutually exclusive. People will be wary of strangers, of touching strangers. They'll be wary of interacting with people they don't know. Or um, as we said in the story, Uh, There have been more complaints um, of racism. There have been more um, dobbing in of your neighbors, of people walking down the road. So anyone that is unfamiliar to you, uh, you'll be wary of them and you will be reluctant to touch them. So when we go and meet someone for the first time at work in a business setting, we go, we give them a handshake or a kiss if you're Maori or a hongi. And these things, people will stop. And we're going to have to learn how to change our social inter- interactions so that we think about, okay, am I going to handshake this person? Am I going to give this person a hongi? I don't know how many other people this person has been in contact with. And it it does mean that we all are going to have to do our own contact tracing. But at the same time, do we really want to lose the social interactions? We, I mean, men like... Do men love the bro hug?
0: Men love the bro hug. Yeah, I, I totally miss bro hugs <laughs> with my mates. And strangely, I'm I'm even missing people I don't really know. Yeah, I was just thinking um,
1: yesterday that I was missing the work coffee machine. It creates this this queue. And so there are these people who I don't work with, whose names I don't always know, who are in other departments within stuff. And I just have these little micro interactions and I'm definitely missing that. It's exactly the same Mm. thing, as you say, Eugene, missing the small interactions with strangers.
2: I hope with missing those small interactions with strangers, we are more inclined to keep them up Mm. when we come out of these levels Mm. rather than all decide, I'm not going to touch you, I'm not going to interact with you. I really hope we don't lose that because I, I really like that that's a part of who we are as New Zealanders.
0: So many questions, but but like you say, I hope we do end up getting back to still enjoying that contact. And I look forward to seeing you again, Carmen. I miss you. So thank you so much for <laughs> joining us. I
2: miss you us. guys too. Oh, thank you very much and all the best.
0: You know, scientists around the world are doing some remarkable work right now, aren't they? And they're answering all sorts of questions. I was wondering about the need for those eye visors, you know, the big, almost welding goggles that that you see people wearing in hospitals. Um, You know, I was sort of wondering, can you blink and catch COVID-19? And there's some scientists from Italy's National Institute for Infectious Diseases. They've published some work that kind of suggests, yeah, maybe. There was a 65-year-old woman who travelled to Italy from Wuhan and she became sick with coronavirus. This was back in January. She had conjunctivitis as one of the symptoms, and so the doctors began testing her ocular fluids, you know, the the goo in her eyes. Eventually, her illness seemed to pass, and she tested negative using nasal swabs. But then five days later, there was still COVID-19 virus in her eye secretions. You know, this work has shown that virus can be spread from the eyes as well as into the body, and is a reminder of the need for eye protection for frontline medical staff. Huh. So a butterfly kiss could
1: kill. Exactly. Doctors in Italy have reported a new COVID-19 symptom, which is also being spotted in some American patients. It's called COVID toes, and it's purple or blue lesions on a patient's feet and toes. Apparently, it it sometimes appears in patients who don't exhibit any other symptoms, and more frequently in children and young adults. So maybe check your toes. Actually, if you're a hypochondriac, don't. There's probably perfectly good reasons why you've got purple toes today, like bunions or something. Nail polish. Or nail polish. And then there's the dangers of farts. What? No, really. The idea that you could catch COVID-19 via the bottom toot was discussed on the Australian ABC Coronacast recently. So apparently proper grown-up serious doctors have pointed out that a recent study suggested that coronavirus could, in theory, be present in what they call aerosolized faeces, which is very charming. Just a note. No one is actually seriously suggesting that this is a vector of any significance, though.
0: Just in case, though, Adam, just keep wearing your bottom mask, you know, your pants, just in case, eh? I am wearing trousers. Very good.
1: Right, plague playlist. Yeah, there's parodies just keep coming. This is a suggestion from Mark via our email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz, and it's another song from Chris Mann who we've already heard doing uh, My Corona and this one is Daycare Closed," which is a new improved version of Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus's
0: Old yeah, Town Road. I
3: gotta play all day the
0: Shout out to all the parents in lockdown with toddlers.
1: Janine Crossan is the founder of the hair and beauty website Flossie.com and a few other things as well. Uh, But lately, she's become better known for something else. She may well be New Zealand's best known coronavirus case. Even before she actually fell ill, Janine was on social media discussing her self-isolation, but then she got sick. Really quite sick. She's in much better shape now, and we got her on the line to talk about what she learned. During her month-long bout with COVID nineteen, so Janine, hi, hi, Kiota, Marina. Listen, at the very beginning, do you have a clear idea of exactly how you caught this bug?
3: No, I don't. Uh, but I was living in the petri dish that is known as London. I can track back to an evening in London where I was with um, a fellow Kiwi out for dinner, and um, she and I. Both ended up being sick around the same time. So we have decided that it's feasible that we got it um, that evening, which was two nights before I left London. But we don't know whether she had it first or I had it first or someone gave it to both of us at the same time. I mean, who's to know? Right. but And even if
1: you hadn't already got it, you were a bit concerned about the, um, the biosecurity that you saw in Gatwick Airport as you left London on your way back to New Zealand,
3: yeah? Yeah, I was a really angry lady (laughs) and I stomped around Gatwick absolutely bitching about their lack of hygiene for their staff, that there was no hand sanitizers, there were no hand wipes, there was nothing wiping down surfaces and... They were absolutely utterly at risk. All these frontline staff were sitting at desks handling one documentation, one piece of luggage after another, with nothing being wiped or done in between. I was horrified.
1: Were you afraid for your own health at that point? It, it's actually more likely that you were giving it to someone than than catching it at Gatwick.
3: Exactly, exactly. I mean, I don't know where I got it from, so it's, any, it's anybody's guess. But um, I was more afraid for them than I was for myself because I still had that um, erroneous view that I would be unlikely to catch it because at that stage we were still passing around, you know, fairly... Um, inaccurate data across the social medias around, you know, the chances of getting it at my age and and the chances of getting sick at my age are just, you know, highly unlikely.
1: What what is your age, by the way, just approximately?
3: I'm 41, approximately. Uh, (laughs) uh, And so I I really didn't – I mean, I was run down, but I certainly – uh, I haven't been properly sick um, other than I have had health-related issues to do with endometriosis, etc. but I haven't been properly flu or that kind of sick in a long, long time. So I, I, I wasn't really worried about me. But the reason I was going home is that every single company I dealt with had stopped doing meetings. Right. Everybody had moved to, to remote. There was no point in me being in London. You know, c- context of that being, I live away from my family um, a, a lot of the year. I live in London, they live here. And so I wanted to be home for it.
1: So you got home, you went straight into isolation in a remote batch and, and hunkered down just to be safe. When did you first suspect that you actually were ill?
3: So my husband and I made the decision when I got to Doha that I would self-isolate. The rules weren't in place at that stage, but um, he has fairly bad lungs and um, we just didn't want to take any risk at all. Uh, And so we just said, you know what, if you just leave me your car at the airport because it's a four-wheel drive, um, chuck some stuff in it that I need, give me my dog and um, we'll meet at the airport, but we won't go near each other and we'll do a a handover and I'll, I'll drive down to the Coromandel. I travelled all the way home with um, uh, a face mask on and, um, you know, I was really particular about hand washing and all the rest of it. So I'd like to think that I minimised contact with everybody. Um, I, f- I flew home business class, so that certainly made me a little bit more isolated than um, probably being squished in with everybody. So just put it in context, I hadn't seen my husband for three months at that point, and so I didn't even get to have a hug or a kiss it was about seven in the morning by the time I got to Fidianga. Uh I put on gloves. I hand sanitized those gloves. Um, I put on a mask. I put on sunglasses. I put on a hoodie, full length, everything. So there was no skin showing. I had a scarf around me. But I fully went hardcore and I walked into the Fitiyanga New World. Wow. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine what they must have thought of that? How did it go down? They thought I was absolutely batshit crazy. So there was no one else around. I saw I saw not a single other shopper. I didn't let the checkout operator touch anything. And I just told her that I've come from London. I don't want to put you at risk. You know, the bag operator, I told her to go away. And then someone else tried to help. I'm like, no, go away. Yeah. <laughs> they must have thought I was really rude, but I was really trying to do it for them.
1: Hey, just for context, when when are we at this point relative to lockdown? I got home on the 15th of March. 10 days before lockdown.
3: Yeah, 15th of March on a Sunday morning. Uh, I wiped down the trolleys with, with um, everything. I rewiped. Like, honestly, I went crazy on the whole, whole wiping thing. Um, and then got in my car and drove into our batch, which is, is in the middle of the Kiwi sanctuary and the Kutuna Peninsula. Um, and batch is a bit of a strong sense of the word. It's a 1950s car container that's had a conversion of adding a ranch slider. So to answer your question, <laughs> when I got in there, uh, it was probably 24 hours. <laughs> And I developed a cough. Right. Um, But I was also incredibly strung out. Uh, I was um, anxious. I was jet lagged. I had been really overworked. I was lonely and upset and frightened and a whole variety of other things about the world imploding around us. And when I get anxious, I get a cough. Right. So I had no idea what was wrong with me at that point. And I rang Healthline and they told me I was just anxious and just needed to calm down. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, cough, doesn't happen very often now. Uh, but um, So that was when I first started to feel unwell, but uh, my my head was really messing with me as well. I used to get a lot of medical anxiety, which I won't bore you on the history of, but it has a good reason. It's attached to nearly dying as a kid. And when I had a hysterectomy last year, my medical anxiety almost evaporated with it, which was fantastic. It's a pretty horrible emotion or a set of emotions to have uh, and so I called a friend who lived up the hill um, and he's a near New Zealand pilot and of course the, all the messages they'd been given were unless you have a temperature you don't have it so he was very clear like you're really jet-lagged right now and I think you just need to sleep go pop a sleeping pill go to sleep and wake up you'll be fine so I've been trying to sort of take this sort of advice that I've been given but I was getting worse and making myself of course feel worse and amongst us And so I spoke to another local who was a friend whose wife was a doctor and he rang her and then she rang me back because I couldn't get through to Healthline at this point. They were just completely swamped. And they were like, you know what, you need to get out of where you are Um, because even if you're not really sick and you're just, you know, just got a cold, whatever, um, it's just probably not the best place to be. So they first of all organised me to go to a lodge in Kotunu, which a nurse ran, uh, which was a completely separate self-contained cottage, and I saw nobody. I, I spoke to her from about, you know, eight metres away. And then I got worse overnight, so I called Healthline in the middle of the night. I wasn't sleeping anyway. And um, they said, you know what, I think you need to get back to where family can look after you. I was not in a good headspace and I needed looking after. So the the, the decision we came up with was that the husband was going to hire a camper van and he was going to put it in the driveway and I was going to get back to Auckland and hunker down in that. I got home, um, finally got hold of my GP because that was the only route apparently I had. So there's a a piece in there that's really important to say, which how frightening and lonely that whole process was when you realise, and I tweeted about this, um... I've done an Instagram post on as well, of when everything you've taken for granted about your health system disappears, where you realize that you can't go to the doctor, you can't make the calls that you normally would make to get the reassurance that you're looking for. none of that was available. They were all overloaded, and their only advice was, unless you know someone who's had it or you have a temperature, we're not coming near you. You're on your own. And that is for someone who has huge amounts of anxiety, that was really hard to hear. I called the um, the Lifeline people at that point because I just so badly needed to have someone just give me some reassurance that um, I was going to be okay. They were amazing, by the way. They were just phenomenal. Uh, but that was, that was really lonely and really hard. And then finally I got to get to see the GP, which was uh, on the... Wednesday and they came at me in hazmat suits in the car park in Ponsonby um they did the test um she listened to my breathing and she got to witness what had become a pretty substantial cough by that point point. and um you know at that stage I was at the I couldn't quite breathe coughing stage um, my ear oxygen was fine So it's like oxygenation for my blood was fine But uh, it was that upper respiratory cough That was just catching And making it impossible for me to Catch my breath at all And so that's the point That they give you a test, right? Yeah, which isn't pleasant It's a very uh, large swab that goes Right up into your brain, it feels like um, yeah. Of course it makes you sneeze And everybody runs for a mile As <laughs> so they should it's the irony of the germs that get spread with that test. Um, the next day, around sort of middle of the day, I got a call from um, a unknown number and the person says it's a doctor from public health and I just went, uh, I said a bunch of words I can't say now. <laughs> and she she went, yes, unfortunately you have COVID-19. And I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried. Um, you know, the... All the world's information at that point for me felt like I'd just been handed a death sentence and, um, I, felt, and I felt really, really, really sick uh, and I was really, really, really scared and no one was allowed to come near me and that's when they started to get into action and the GP and Puppet Health went through a number of things. There's a huge number amount of paperwork that they do to trace test who you've seen, who's been near you uh, and lucky for me, I had no close contacts. There was no one who had come into contact with me. That other than the driver who took me to Gatwick, who they got in contact with, there was no one who had seen me. And um, uh, and obviously we can't, we can't trace airline or um, airport staff. And I did wear a mask the entire time. <laughs>
1: So what were your symptoms over the whole course of of the disease?
3: Um, Sore throat first. I think that's pretty common. Um, And that sore throat then extended into a cough. And that cough became uh, deeper, harder, and more frequent and uncontrollable. Um, I had a persistent headache. I was really, really tired um, and body aches. Pretty confused. I lost all sense of smell and taste. I lost 5kg. Uh, I found it again, too, disappointingly. Those were the first time round, those were the the symptoms. Second time round, less um, of a sore throat, it was only very brief, and the cough was much less, but the headache was like a migraine I'd never experienced. It was extraordinary. I I wanted to drill a hole in my head to let the pressure out of it.
1: So why was the decision made for you to go to hospital?
3: Uh, breathing mostly, cough was out of control. Doctors decided that the best bet was to get me under observation. Um, the hospital system wasn't overrun at that point, so it was you know a time where they could take me in, uh, probably a good guinea pig for them all. And um, they hadn't had any other COVID cases in North Shore Hospital. I was the first. In fact, I was the first person tested in my Ponceby Medical Centre as well. They handled it brilliantly. I was put into full isolation, um, and I had three nights of nobody coming near me really except for doing OBS uh, three times a day, and that was it. Um, Whilst I was in hospitals, the cough was at its worst, um, but my oxygen levels were fine. All my tests were okay. I was just not in a very happy state, and that cough was pretty ugly. So I I wasn't in any any danger of it getting worse, but how COVID works is that if you're at that point, you can go downhill very quickly, and so they wanted to keep a close eye on that. You got out, but then you went back. What was that about? I got out uh, of hospital, went to the camper van. Oh, I can't remember exactly the dates in here, but I'm pretty sure it was 10 days in the camper van um, with you know, total isolation. And then the instructions were, if once you've had 48 hours of symptom-free, you are considered okay to come out of that isolation. And that, And that's effectively what happened there's so much misinformation and unknowns and it's not that that people are trying to spread it wrong they don't know um and so there's a lot of guesstimates going through so i had 48 hours of of symptom free and um that was the monday i came out of the the, um camper van i moved into our eldest daughter's bedroom because she's overseas um and i set myself up down the other end of the house so that i wasn't you know over on top of everybody um and that same afternoon, because we're a blended house, um, the kids went back to their mums because uh, we were told that that was okay to do. About the Wednesday, I started to feel pretty average again. Um, just you know, the headache started, I just felt pretty yucky. Uh, and then the Friday morning, Maddie, our middle girl, um, came back to us and I sort of took one look at her and went, oh God, you look a bit yellow, like, you know, like a bit jaundice, and just look hot. And then her cough started, and we're like, oh, no. <laughs> and they had already been tested. Oh, all, all, all of them had been tested and tested negative. I had been cleared, and but they don't clear you with a test. They clear you with symptoms. Um, and so then we um, got another test done. I had another positive test, and um, Maddie had a test, and it was negative, but they decided to treat her as a probable because she has symptoms. Um And she was fine and we've isolated her for the last three weeks now and nobody's left this house. So that's been it and and so that lasted for me for another two weeks in total and and then it finally disappeared and I finally started to feel better and I've probably been completely symptom-free for a week and I've been testing negative since last Wednesday.
0: We're hearing more about that, of people having... A recurrence of the illness. So in between, did you feel okay? And then it came back.
3: Yeah. And I've had the same with another friend here who's come home from London. She's had exactly the same experience.
0: (laughs) Mm. There's so much that we just don't know, isn't there? But you're living it. Yeah, you're going through it. What's that like to be patient 37?
3: Yes. Well, uh, patient 37, as I like to refer to as agent 37, thank you. Um, Although that that might not be the right connotation I'm looking for, but um, it was a really, really bizarre experience. Obviously, I shared it very publicly.
0: Why did you decide to do that?
3: What everybody doesn't know is I don't really remember much of that. Um, Okay. So what I can tell you is I did consciously know I was sharing um, because I knew how scared I had been and I knew how scared other people had been. And I guess my MO for the last few years has been to be quite the oversharer when it comes to emotions, because I know a lot of founders who feel that they have to put on a certain, you know, vibe for everybody else, as opposed to living um, how they're really feeling. Uh, And it's suffocating. And so when I kind of got into that way of operating a few years back uh, it's sort of one of those switches that you can't turn back off uh, not, you know, not all those things necessarily were good things, I know some of my friends are pretty upset with me for sharing the coughing video um, without warning <coughs> <coughs> they were upset that you know, I didn't give them a heads up and you know, they were worried that God, as far as they were concerned that meant I could die and they, that was awful <coughs> <coughs> it's pretty hard to hear right and it's pretty hard to watch um, but I guess where the other side of that story looks like now is you've got um, people taking it a lot more seriously. And I had that in my head that um, a lot of people were treating this as just like the flu and um, a lot of people were treating this pretty much like this is something that happens in other countries. Uh, and so I definitely felt like there was a need to share um, some realism and also from a normally healthy 41-year-old. So what have you learned as a patient
1: that other New Zealanders might find helpful as lockdown starts to ease up in New Zealand and I guess we have, you know, an increase in the possibility of people getting this thing? What should we be doing?
3: Be very careful about your bubble and um, and how you extend it. I know you're missing all your mates and you want to rush out into the world and we'll give them a big hug and say, hey, hey, I'm healthy but we're going to get community transmission really quickly if we all take that approach. We need to be very cognizant of keeping our circles small and that needs to go on for a lot, lot longer until there is a vaccine and that could be 18 months. We could be socially distancing for possibly two years.
1: Mm, we need to work out some new version of hugs, remote Technologies with no. This is all getting weird and gross.
3: Well, yeah, it is. It's, it's funny you should say that because my daughter's living in France and she had only just sort of just got used to this whole double kissing on both sides of the cheek. <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. That's gone. <laughs> well, in prison
1: movies, they always have the thing where you, you you know you hold your hand up to the glass and they hold their hand up to the glass and <laughs> you have this this poignant moment of emotional connection through an impermeable barrier. I guess we might have to come up with something. I mean, you know, we had the non-contact hongi and the East Coast eyebrow. Anyway, Janine. and Thank you very much for telling your story for us and hope that your improved health continues to improve and that cough goes away forever. Thank you.
3: Thanks, guys, for having me. Uh, I think it's a really important opportunity to have everybody appreciate the the long-term opportunity as well as um, implications that we have here and as much as it's been a hardship on everyone to be isolated from the people that they love, there is so much golden opportunity to change the way that this world works, and um, I think we should take a lot of heart in how well we have done as a country, and uh, and stick to that. Keep keep going. It's good. We've got a long way to go, and we're going to need to look after each other a lot more. So let's keep let's keep let's keep it up.
1: That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Wednesday, the 22th of April. The typo's still there, isn't it? I'm Adam Dudding, he's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Carmen Parahi, Janine Crossan, Alex Liu, Catherine George, John Hartfeld and Carol Hirschfeld.
0: We've got to get new help from AI, don't we? In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on the usual podcast platforms and at the stuff website stuff.co.nz and you can get in touch with us via our email viruspod at stuff.co.nz
1: Zbogom.